Welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Ben Walter. Ben is a writer, and his short story collection, What Fear Was, is available now through Puncher and Watman. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Let's start with Tasmania. It's a beautiful place. It's become a centre of the arts in recent years. Tell me about the highs and lows of life in Tassie. Look, it's hard to talk about highs and lows because I've always lived here, and so I don't necessarily see them as being higher or lower than any other baseline that might exist. For me, it feels like a, it's just very normal. Um, in, in that way, though, I mean, for me, what's important to my life here is the fact that it's still relatively small, it's familiar, I can get outside really easily and do things in the natural world that I really, really like. Um, and, you know, the, and the pleasures of that natural world are like nowhere else that I've ever seen. And so it's just a, a fantastic um, privilege, I guess, that we have being so close to that and so many accessible different lifestyles nearby. It's such an interesting place because I feel like it is still somewhere that's that's so almost isolated. And the fact that today we were talking earlier, the fact that the internet just went down for hours and hours and hours because someone cut off a cable, mm. like it just reminds me of that, the idea of that isolation. And a place like, you know, you look at a place like Bruny Island, which is just, you know, right near you, mm. and it feels like it could be like so far away from any, you know, place you've ever been. So um, how do you feel about that nature of isolation down there? Look, it's, it's a really difficult question, again, in some ways, because it feels normal to, to us. But I guess the counter of it is that when you, when I say turn up somewhere else, like if I go to the mainland, if I go to somewhere else internationally, um, which is a long time since I've done anything like that, but it, it feels like you're much more in... A, a network which is larger and potentially more oppressive, potentially good. It's really hard to tell with these sorts of things. Whereas down here, there is that sense of distance. There's a sense of identity, which is peculiar and particular to the place, which is not quite the same as anywhere else. Like you go into the bookshops, for example, there's the Tasmanian section in the bookshop. And, you, and that has, that, that certainly in the bookshop that I spend a day working at, be one of the biggest selling sections. Which, which I don't think would be paralleled anywhere else in the country. There's this interest and, 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 and I hesitate to say insularity because that has a pejorative connotation, but there's certainly a, an interest in, in, its, in its own identity and understanding what that means and its own history and, and where it's going. So I think, yes, it, it feels distanced in certain respects, but I think the flip side of that is that there's a, a some sort of clarity of identity for the people who live here, and that's lovely. I think it's amazing mm. that, and I've visited Tasmania numerous times, the, the way Tasmania's changed, and you must have, uh, I guess, experienced this as a local, the fact that, I guess, mainland people have increasingly been moving to Tasmania, especially the last few years. Real estate prices have gone mental, there's mm. nowhere to rent uh, in Tasmania at the moment because people from the mainland are buying up property. Um, have you seen that change? And is it a positive thing for Tasmania? It's complicated, like, like anything. It's, and w- whether it's positive or not probably depends on who you ask and where they sit in the socioeconomic spectrum and, and what their positions of privilege are. I mean, 
there's a, there's a, there's a narrative. Flanagan will say, for example, that most narratives about Tasmania are told from outside, and I feel like that's true even in this case. That as soon as Mona comes in, you see all these new narratives being constructed about Tasmania in terms of creative and artistic renaissance, and they're all projected from outside because it was there was nothing like that on the ground. It was just untrue. Um, and kind of snooty in a way because it assumed that there was no cultural life here beforehand until this rich benefactor turns up and makes a museum. Whereas the reality was that there's a, a certain level of continuity between uh, pre-Mona and post-Mona to the extent that um, particularly in all sorts of art forms, there's, there's not a great difference in that prior or post. Um, there are certain sorts of opportunities that come from the renewed branding, I suppose, and the renewed interest, but there's not that massive change. What, what cha has changed is, I guess, that largely mainland response to that narrative. And so you get a lot of more tourism down here, even more than there used to be, more diverse tourism, people coming not just for sort of the wild places or these kinds of things that they may once have. And people coming down here to live or people investing down here in Airbnbs that sort of a local can't afford to buy. So I think in terms of the change, in a lot of ways, I see very little change at all. I see a lot more tourist interest. I see some more cultural activity trading off the back of that impression that others have. And I see a lot of inequality developing too as um, people who um, you know, can sell a house in Melbourne for a million, $2 million and come down here. Um, out-competing um, people who have sort of grown up here and live here and are trying to find a place to rent with on the sort of incomes that Tasmania can provide. So I think that that, that latter one is the one I have the most concern about is that it, in some ways, um, and you see it in other sort of, well, I hear about it in other touristy sites in, in Australia like Byron, all these kinds of things where you see locals being priced out of the market. I've got a friend who moved to New Zealand because he couldn't afford to live here anymore. And I think that's a real shame. Yeah, yeah I completely agree with you. I think there's, uh, in my work with disability, I think I saw this a lot where people who were looking for especially housing uh, and especially in the north of Tasmania were struggling to find anything because everything was rented out by Airbnbs or everything was mm. rented out by wealthy people who weren't even living in the place. Mm. And um, it really does have a massive effect on those kind of people. And, you know, it does increase the fact that, you know, you're looking at poverty and homelessness in a place mm. that is so beautiful as Tasmania. Yeah, it's a real concern. I and mean, I don't see the, the depths of it because I'm sort of in some ways locked away in my home with my family and, sort of, you know, I, I don't necessarily, particularly in the relation to the pandemic, it's in some ways it's much more difficult to have that sort of close and intimate contact with all of the stories that you might be able to hear uh, and of the people who are struggling or the people who are having these issues, but it's reported on in the press. It's I see it in certain people who I know who are having those challenges and it's, it's just awful. You go from somewhere like Tasmania, which, okay, so it had its issues. It had certainly had issues prior to that. It had economic issues. There are cultural issues. Um, there's great vision in the community around particularly things like environmental matters. It's not that you're going from an idyllic thing to, um, to something where it's just um, totally ruined. Uh, it's, it's a situation where there are new and different problems, but the new and different problems um, are of a sort that makes it challenging for all sorts of Tasmanians, I think, to find their way. We'll move on to your collection, What Fear Was. It's a great collection of short stories. The writing goes from this naturalistic 
and then you have absurd elements. It's sad, it's funny, it's beautiful. How did the collection come together? Look, it's, I'm sure that there could be a, a, a more elegant way of expressing it, but it was really just taking all of these short stories that I've written over the last probably seven or eight years for most of them um, and chatting to my agent, Martin, saying, Look, which ones do you reckon should be in the collection? And we had a bit of a discussion back and forth um, and eventually settled on the ones that are there. Um, it's just, it's just, in some ways, it was sport for choice because I'd, I'd had a, a fairly long run, I suppose, being fairly productive in short story writing. And then you just go, oh, okay, which ones do we like the absolute best? Which ones can, can represent, I guess, my work adequately in terms of this collection? And that's where we ended up with. It is, it's really diverse. Two of my favourite pieces in the collection feature the cricket commentator, Tony Gregg, who's mm-hmm. dead, and Leslie yeah. Nelson, the actor, who's also dead. Yeah. And they're basically, they're in the afterlife, I guess, in some way. And I think that uh, having the two of them together in a story together would be really interesting, but they are separate. Um, <laughs> I think loss and the comfort that we seek following loss is kind of a central theme to a lot of your stories. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Certainly in the stories that you mentioned, those two, which because because you mentioned them, they come close to mind. Um, there's an implicit loss and a, and a reaching out for something in both of those stories. And it and I can't speak to it particularly articulately beyond that because I haven't necessarily written that, um, that framework through my mind in terms of what it might mean or signify in what I do. But if that's there, I can understand what you're pointing out. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Your prose style is really different. In part, it reminded me of some of Nabokov's short stories. Did you have some authors that you modelled your prose style on? No, and I've got no idea where it came from, honestly. Um, yeah, there are sometimes, I think, when you're really conscious of influence, like sometimes, um, particularly when you're younger as a writer, um, you see something really distinct and you're conscious of that influencing what you're doing and how you go about it because you want to try and imitate that. I think as time goes on, it's harder and harder to recognise that because the influences become much more subtle on what you're doing. It might just be a plot turn or it might be a a way of uh, introducing a character. I think early on, and this is a long time ago, some of what I was trying to model on was on the work of Don DeLillo, um, particularly at the level of dialogue, but it's a long time since the prose that I write would resemble what DeLillo does. And I don't know where it came from. It was just a a factor of working on and on and on at writing and discovering what for me represents a kind of internal rhythm of prose, which I think characterises a lot of what I do is somehow um, the discoverer of these kinds of rhythms. And I don't have no idea where it came from in, in terms of whether it was a relation of specific influences or whether it was a rhythm that was just brewed up inside me for some reason. In terms of themes, I think mm. nature will be one of the themes that people look at. You have mountain climbers, you've got people hiking and things like that. How do you feel about being out in the wild and especially in Tasmania? It's it's something I haven't had as much chance to do in the last few years because I have three very young children and so that um, takes away from the opportunities to do it, though I I still get out here and there. But for me, um, it's a really important experience to the extent that when I'm out in the bush, I feel settled and content and comfortable in a way that's just 
different and distinct from anything else in my life. Like I'm, I, I reach a certain type of happiness, which is very different. Um, and that's whether it's just a little tiny dinky walk through some trees just to get to a water hole down the road or whether it's walking off track through ridiculous mountains somewhere in the southwest it's the same kind of feeling of settledness and being comfortable in where i am and one with my surroundings so yeah that's really key how that relates to the writing i'm not as clear because a lot of the writing is really interested in taking that very specific Tasmanian experience, whether it be the bush or whether it be some other element of Tasmania and messing with it and skewing it in some respect. And so in a way, the, the experience of the bush is too simple for me to write about in and of itself. Uh, I, I feel like I need to bring in these other elements for me to be interested in creating something different and new and distinct in order to make swerves or angles on that experience in certain respects. There are quite a few complications, I suppose, with being out in nature in these stories. And we do have uh, several, I guess, maybe disasters, several things that don't go to plan uh, as people experience nature. Um, what are some of your experiences of nature that haven't gone as well as you expected? <laughs> um, look, there's, there's one story, in, in, which is the title story in the book, which does which is informed by personal experience where I was walking in the Western Arthurs nearly 10 years ago, um, which is a, a relatively remote, but still sort of tracked range near Lake Pedder or what we now call Lake Pedder. Um, and the fires, the significant fires arose at that time. That were the fires that destroyed or largely decimated Dunalley, which is a town on the Tasman Peninsula near Port Arthur or towards the Tasman Peninsula. And uh, there was a massive fire that brewed up in the southwest, so I was walking through these mountains. And the, the, the interesting thing about it was you just had no idea what was going on because you can't necessarily see where the fire is or what it's doing, and for some times you just blanketed it in smoke and ash, and so you've just got no idea. And so we just stayed high because the fires down here are much less likely to come across the top of mountain sites until we were helicoptered out. So there are things like that where things do go wrong. Um, sometimes, you know, I remember being on a mountain peak in the middle of a thunderstorm and seeing lightning smashing towards me and, you know, you're just getting out of there as quickly as possible and, and things like this. You know, mostly it's weather. I mean, there's not a, you, can, you can have an injury, um, which, you know, these things can happen in the bush. Um, I've never had a serious injury out there to, to speak of, you know, touch wood. But a lot of the time, the things that in at least a Tasmanian landscape that you're having to manage is the various sorts of weather conditions, whether it be rain or snow. or And they're not necessarily things that go awfully wrong, but it's just a, a layer of complication that you have to manage. What are some of the best experiences you've had out there in the wild? I really love walking off track in alpine areas in good weather. Like it's the most, particularly with good friends, because it, it sounds strange to add that, but what I find the beauty of it is, is that in an off-track situation where you are free to go wherever you want, and that's absolutely liberating. You can just wander through these mountains going where you want. The weather's good. Um, you've got time to sit and look at what you're doing. And with good friends, there's security in that too, because you're working together to maybe work out how to get up a mountain that doesn't have a track up it and it's covered in scrub. And so it's it's a very much... A, it's almost like a team-oriented thing where you're making these decisions together and sharing the load of how best to do it. 
so a, a recent walk I did have the chance to do about a year ago was um, a walk out to Mesa, which is a, a totally insignificant mountain in the southwest, but we wanted to go there and have a look and do it as a day walk. Um, and to, to get to that area, we had to climb one of the highest climbs in the state just to begin to what we wanted to do, Adamson's Peak. Um, and so we do this massive climb and then we're walking out along these ridge lines to get there. And it's just glorious. We, we're tired. It takes most about 13 hours most of the day to do the walk. But through all of that, we've got this chance to, to look at it around us, to take in what we're doing, to be completely absorbed with what we're doing. And, you know, it's those sorts of days that you just live for in terms of getting out there. That sounds amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's great. Have, have you seen the Southern Lights? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I mean, they're, they're not, I imagine, as, as good as they'd be if, you know, you're further south or further north. But, yeah, uh, the best time I ever saw them was in the city of Hobart. Like, um, I remember living in a share house, it was right at the bottom of one of the steepest streets in the city. And we must have been aware that they were happening. Someone might have let us know or something. So we all just ran up to the top of this steep street. Well, we ran for a few steps and then staggered up the top of this steep street. So you've got the, you're at the top of this hill and you've got this vista across the town seeing the, the lights shimmer in the sky across you. So even with the light of Hobart throwing itself up against the sky, we could still see the, the aurora. Yeah, it was great. Wow. In terms of short stories, uh, in terms of writing short stories, is it something that's easy to get published or is it something that's tricky? Because I know you've got quite a few published short stories and journals and things like that in the past. Uh, in terms of a collection, getting it out there, is that something that's easy or hard to do? Really hard. Um, I think it's hard to get short stories published too because there are so few outlets, but at least if you're publishing in Australia, um, there are very few outlets for short stories and it's competitive and um, and lots of people are, are trying to, to get them in. I mean, I edit fiction for Ireland, and then in the last submissions round, I had 360 stories submitted. I could publish probably, I don't know, 14, 15 of them. So um, it's really hard, I think, to get them out, but a collection even more so. And a collection that can't be pretended to be a, a sort of a novel, <laughs> you know, a linked short story collection that publishers mm -hmm. can pretend a novel so they can try and sell more copies. Um, and a collection which is... Um, more experimental, I guess, than most short story writers tend to go for. Um, yeah, it's really hard I, I, because publishers don't think that they can make any money off them. And so and even commercial publishers are publishing ostensibly commercial short story collections, probably just doing that because they're hanging out for the novel that the writer is going to end up writing. I mean, so in a, in a context of Australia where there are very few real non-profit publishers per se, you know, particularly those publishing creative work, um, it's, it's really hard to get them up. Was it hard pitching uh, a story about Talking Fish as the opening story to this collection? Oh, well, that's the beauty of having the publisher that I have, I think, because, the, the, you know, Ed at Puncher and Watman has been terrific and, you know, he really values literature and, and Puncher really values writing the writing so ed actually suggested it <laughs> I, I had i had a, i had a different story opening the collection and he said well why don't we move that one up it's just it's a good story and you know it's it's really funny because a couple of people have said gosh there you start out at the point end with some of those stories some of the more literary ones and i feel like that's right maybe that puts some people off but also it, you know i am who i am like i'm not the guy who's going out and ever going to be selling 10 20,000 copies of a book in a commercial setting that's just not me unless i try and do it for fun under a pseudonym or something i mean 
it's 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 who I am, and hopefully the those stories reach the audience that's there for them. Yeah. I was lucky enough to go to a nice bookshop on Sunday and saw your beautiful book on the shelf there. Uh, the cover is probably one of the most stunning covers that I've seen in a long time. Could you tell us a bit about designing or who designed that cover? Look, it, I'm really lucky. What, what happened was um, I approached, uh, well, I, I thought, well, what I'd really like to do because, um, again, Puncher doesn't have the resources for enormous design budgets and these kinds of things. But I thought what I'd really like to do is to get a, a Tasmanian artist on the cover. And so I was searching through a range of Tasmanian artists. I was chatting to a mate of mine who lives down the road, Jane Lawson, who's a great writer in her own right. And she said, well, why don't you check out this guy? And I went and it's Troy, it's Troy Ruffles, who's a really interesting artist. And I found this image in Troy's work and I, and I really liked it. And I, I wrote to him and I asked if, if he'd mind if we used it for the jacket image. And he was really obliging with it for that, um, which is really kind of him and generous. And um, so I think the design just flows from the use of that fabulous image of Troy's um, and and from there, and, uh, I'm really grateful to him because uh, his his work's just amazing. That's yeah. a great that's a great cover. I know you've got an unpublished novel that I think won uh, one of those manuscript awards, but what are you working on next? That's terrifying because I've just come to the end of a huge pile of work for Ireland. I've still got some stuff to tick over. I've got this manuscript out. I did a book with Jane called Breathing Space where we curated a whole pile of Tasmanian nature writing. And so I've just had this load of work and also these young children. And so I've gotten to the point now where I've suddenly got the prospects of having some time for the first time in actually years, like real time and, and also brain space to actually think clearly and creatively. So what I'd really like to do, I think, is to maybe write some new short stories just for fun because I love writing short stories. But for the first time in a really long time, it feels like I could get into longer prose projects as well. And so at the moment, I'm really just churning that around in my head, partly because I just don't believe that I have the time, so I find other ways to fill it, but partly because there's there's that time now where I need to reflect and think about what it is that I want to um, blow my head up thinking about in terms of producing something new. So I, I really like the idea of some of these yeah, bigger projects. In some of your spare time, I know you are very keen on planting fruit trees. What have you got <laughs> growing at the moment? <laughs> um, what's in the moment? A big pile of apples are coming ready at the moment. Um, we, had, we had a horrendous season down here for stone fruit because of um, it just, you know, the La Nina just meant it just rained and rained and rained until about the middle of January. And so we just had some mould on the trees. But, yeah, the apples seem to soldier on no matter what's going on. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about your gateway books. What were some of the books that really influenced your writing and your reading life? Yeah, it's tricky. I, again, for that same answer that I gave earlier is that it's really hard to go back and think, I think, and because there are so many books, the one that really stands out for me, in my memory at least, is um, just the collected fictions of Borges. And I feel like even though my prose style is completely different to that kind of cerebral, distant, cold style that he employed so well, I feel like that reading all of his work helped me to understand how an idea could drive a short story and even the feelings in a short story, as opposed to trying to construct a sort of standard simplistic plot or something like this. 
And I feel like that was freeing. And, that, and even though I don't necessarily think that I've gone on with that in quite the same way, letting just a pure idea drive a story, I felt like that was the moment of liberation where it helped me just to recognise the possibilities of the form and to continue experimenting along those lines. And so I feel like, yeah, the, the, the short stories of Borges was were really important for me in that respect. Interesting. All right. Mm-hmm. What are the books that you're currently reading or the books you're looking forward to? Um, I just, we've got Ellen Van Nieuwen um, running a seminar for Ireland as part of our Nature Writing Project. So I've been wanting to work through their work in order to have a, a really good grasp of where they're coming from. So I just finished Heat and Light today, which I really enjoyed, particularly the first third. I thought that was really fine, linked short stories. Um, and, and, and the second third I really liked as well. The, third, the last third I felt was a, a little more uneven, but there was still lots of worth in there that I, I found valuable. And so I really enjoyed that collection. Um, for me, it's just dragging myself away from the island short stories now. So it, it, there are prospects of, of reading new things. I'm really looking forward to reading the final version of Adam Austin's book, um, which is now, yeah, yeah. I, I read it in manuscript very early in the, in the piece and I'm really looking forward to seeing how that's developed and transformed and um, and where where that ended up getting in terms of Adam's redrafting and the work on editorial. So that's a book that I'm really, really looking forward to. Um, to, to me, it, again, it just having, having spent two months reading Ireland short stories, it's now just the, having the, the opportunity to sit down and read books like that again is lovely because I think I, I managed about three Lee Child books in January and that was about all just through pure exhaustion. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm really, look, I'm really looking forward to getting back to, um, to having a brain that can cope with something more than that. Yeah. Mm. Are there books you're looking forward to reading in this coming year apart from those? Um, that's a really interesting question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I have all of these stacks of books everywhere and I just haven't had the space in my head to even contemplate them, to be honest. I, mm. I've, I've been overworked and consumed with the kids. Um, and so every now and then what happens is I pass by these stacks and they are stacks. They're like a, a huge mess of things all over the place and I see something I don't even really look at it because I, to, to look at it would acknowledge that it's there <laughs> and that I have to cope with it and think about it. Um, but I'm now at the stage of just being able to go, oh, yeah, this is actually a, a possibility. This is a possibility. But no, I, I couldn't drag something out of my head. My brain wouldn't do that. But I know that they're there. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Adam Austin, what was mm. the bookshop you worked at together? Uh, Fuller's, yeah. Fuller's Bookshop, okay. Mm. So we're going to make Fuller's our sponsor for this week's episode then. <laughs> we'll make an ad for them, I think. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we, worked, we worked together for a long time there at various stages, yeah. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Ben's Top 10. This episode is sponsored by Fuller's Books. 131 Collins Street, Hobart. Mention BTZ for your chance to win a confused look from the salespeople. Find them at fullersbookshop.com.au. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Ben's Top 10. Oh, look, it's, it's really hard because there are so many, but I, I did some thinking about this when you, 
you suggested that I might have to answer a question along these lines, which I find <laughs> terrifying, honestly, because there's <laughs> there are so many books and you feel, you feel embarrassed at the ones you forget about. Um, my absolute one of my absolutely favorite books is Simon Armitage's work of um, sort of monologue slash prose poems called Seeing Stars. I think that that's just an, a wonderful book, which is funny and interesting and well written and sad and devastating at various times. Um, I love um, Vitor Gombrovich's books, Cosmos and Ferdy Dirk. Like I could go and read those again and again and again, I think. Um, just, I mean, what, what I particularly love in a book is something that offers a, a singular weird vision. And I think that those books are really fantastic exemplars of that. Um, I'd probably take something like Slaughterhouse-Five to read over and over, Kurt Vonnegut. I'd probably take long books by DeLillo, like Underworld, to read again, just to marvel at the language and the connections that he forms like that. Um, you know, if, if I was Desert Islanding, of course, I'd be biased towards long books, but then shorter books crop up in my head, like Samantha Schwabson's Fever Dream. Um, I loved uh, Pereira Maintains by Tabuki. Um, Jared Donovan's book, Julius Winsome, which is just a crystal clear, fabulous book. Um, and then I just feel like I'd embarrass myself now by going on and on and on. But there's some that sort of came to my mind when I was thinking about wonderful books, rather Atlas Speedboat. How, how exciting a book is that? Yeah. I have got that in my pile to read. I haven't read it yet. And I've been waiting to read it. I just haven't had the time to do it. But tell oh, me a bit more, about, oh, tell me it's a bit more a, about it. Like, it's so funny. I mean, it's totally fragmented, fragmented narrative, which I love because a fragmented narrative or uh, multiple narratives mean that your brain has to do the work of connection, which is the fun bit. Um, but it's it's just the each of these sort of fragmented narratives is is so um, funny or interesting or distinct in its own way. And they all look. Do they go to, to form a whole? They, they partly do. Like you don't necessarily get that sense of somewhere like um, like uh, who had that book, Department of Speculation? Um, Jenny Offal. Yeah, Jenny Offal, like that, which is fragmented, but you do get a very, very strong sense of wholeness forming through that book. It's a fabulous book. Mm. Um, and you don't quite get that with Speedboat, but the sections are so good and there is some sense of wholeness behind it that it's just an absolute pleasure to read. I mean, I remember Vonnegut saying once, you know, that it, I think every sort of section of prose or something that he wrote, he, he'd written as kind of like a joke, like he imagined it as a joke. Um, and I feel like in some ways, without wanting to reduce speedboat to that because it's not just that each piece is a joke but it feels like the work of construction into each fragmented piece has been so precise in, and considered in that way that it's such a pleasure to read wow okay mm. talking to lilo uh can you give us a few tips of where to go with delillo because i know everyone goes to underworld and white noise what are some mm. of the other really great works of delillo oh look i I find, I mean, and I've probably only ever read about half of his books overall. Uh, um, but even with the the most recent book, which is barely a novella, which which just came out, I can't remember what it's called. Um, I, I I bought that, and I just suddenly felt so familiar in his world, and such a pleasure to be in his world. So, I mean, even books that he gets criticised for, like that one, like the Body Artist, um, I just feel like. There's something about the way that he thinks and constructs prose that for me feels um, beautifully singular and I'm very happy to be there. So whether Falling Man I really liked, um, 
everything that I've read, I've just feel in some ways, I just don't care about the book at all. I don't, I don't care about what happens. I'm, I'm not interested. What I'm interested in is how he experiences or how he, how he produces the experience of text first. Um, yeah. Are there any other authors that you would go out and buy their book as soon as it came out? Mm, yeah, there's probably lots when I think about it. I mean, I really like the Welsh writer, Conan Jones. I think that he's, again, an amazing stylist. Um, I really like Olivia Lang in terms of her approach to form. And, and like Crudo is just such a nutty, interesting book um, that there's such, uh, such a pleasure to read. It really divided people, that book, but it, I think that it's, it's amazing in terms of what she's doing. Um, and there, Wayne Macaulay in an Australian context, if, you know, I just feel like he's such a, an interesting writer with such interesting influences. And every time, like I'm just hanging out for the next Wayne Macaulay book, I was really late to him. And I just, in probably the last three or four years, I just read everything by him. I think his short story collection, Other Stories, is the best Australian short story collection I've ever read. I think it's amazing. And so, yeah, I'm just hanging out for whatever he does next. Amazing. All right, well, what days can people come and see you at Fuller's? I'm, I'm only ever there on a Monday, which means even the public holidays, I'm not there. So, 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 <laughs> so, I, so just only ever on a Monday. Very nice. Mm. All right, well, before we wrap it up, and so you can get a nice early night, where can we go and buy your wonderful collection? Look, it's, it's going to be in you know, bookshops all around the country, but, you know, we're, we're coming through a small publisher, so no doubt some bookshops will go on nut but they can order it. It comes through sort of standard major distributors. So any bookshop in the country can either have it or order it and the online sellers have it too. Brilliant. And where can we go and find you online? Um, I've just got a website, um, which I I can't even remember what it's called, but I'm sure Google would point you in the right direction, which which points to the website. And from there, there's uh, annoying links to various pieces of my work that can be found online. (laughs) Brilliant. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up. But thank you so much. Uh, everyone should go out and buy this collection. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, go and buy it. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks once again to Ben Walter. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with the next episode next week.